We want to welcome you to uh, Plum Creek Chapel. I know we've got some folks live streaming, and we uh, reminded people today in a podcast that I did with Randy about tonight's uh, live stream. So really looking forward to kicking off our new series here on uh, the greatness of God. Um, and I uh, hope you'll make plans to come each week. Don't know how long it'll last. You know, what we've historically done on Wednesday nights is just started a series and let it go where it goes, you know. So uh, as always, feel free to raise your hand with questions, make uh, comments. We don't have our soundboard going tonight, so uh, I'll have to repeat the questions, which is not a problem. Um, but uh, before we begin, uh, I mentioned the podcast today. So earlier today, I did an, another podcast with Randy. Uh, it's our third one with him. Love him. He's just such a great friend and a great knowledgeable individual. But we talked about UFOs, the Bible, and you. And we did that because last week I did a short segment with Brandon House on UFOs, and it really generated a ton of interest. We got a lot of emails and uh, just uh, people reaching out. And so I thought, well, I'm going to dedicate a whole hour to it. So it was fascinating. When you get a chance, uh, be sure and listen to that. Uh, you can listen to our podcast. You can get to everything about Not By Works Ministries at notbyworks.org. Uh, but if you go to notbyworks.org, just click on podcast and you can listen to it there. They're in order from the most recent. Uh, and then, or you can go to wherever you listen to podcasts. So, you know, Spotify, Google, uh, Apple. Um, I don't even know all the different names of podcast providers, uh, Podbean, but wherever you, you, your favorite place to listen to podcasts is, just go to Not By Works Ministries there. So check that out. Uh, and that's really the only uh, new data or new uh, resources that we have this week. So with that, I want to uh, introduce our series. And let's open with a board of prayer, and, uh, and then I'll kind of tell you what, what my thinking is as we talk about the greatness of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for each person that's here tonight. Thank you for the, the good group that came out in the middle of the week just to uh, read your word and see how you've revealed yourself to us and uh, what you want us to know about uh, yourself. And so, Lord, our hope is that this will help us to fall in love with you all over again, that it will strengthen our faith, that it will remind us of what a mighty God we serve, even in the midst of disappointing and uh, discouraging things happening all around us. And so, Lord, we give you this time. Uh, we pray that you'd go before us over the next many weeks as we talk about this and uh, pray that it truly would uh, be a blessing. And of course, Lord, we do pray if anyone's listening uh, to this uh, service or the, this series or watching the videos we pray if they don't know you, that through uh, your self-revelation to mankind, they might realize uh, their need for a Savior and realize that you sent your Son to be just that, to, this, to be the Savior of the world, and that possibly through this series we might see people come to faith. And so we pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, uh, yeah, this is going to be uh, hopefully very in encouraging. I I've mentioned in some of our announcements over the last couple of weeks that as I was thinking about what to cover next in our midweek series, you know, we took two weeks off, or two months off uh, so that I could finish up uh, the book, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2. And then uh, during that time, we had a guest speaker come in and, and do some evangelism training. And I know some of you may have sat through some of that. Uh, but as I was getting closer to restarting this uh, tonight, I started thinking about what should we cover and uh, one day as I was driving, the Lord just said, you know, we've spent a lot of airtime talking about Satan's plan and his deception and his Luciferian conspiracy to take over the world. And that's important. That's part of God's end times plan. It's, it's valuable uh, information. But as someone said to me tonight, it's heavy information. And we know that. And so I think uh, it's helpful uh, to balance that out, which is my goal with uh, some great scripture about the greatness uh, of God. And so that's kind of what we're hoping to do in this series. Now, we're launching this at kind of a difficult time just because we're headed into the holiday season. So you're going to have to be, be patient with us, watch the announcements. We'll always post schedule changes uh, online, both at plumcreekchapel.org and notbyworks.org. But, um, for example, we're going to meet the next two weeks, and then we'll take a week off for Thanksgiving then we'll be back on again, and then I'm off a couple of weeks in December. 
so uh, it'll be hit or miss uh, two or three weeks here, then off, and then two or three weeks. But bear with us because once we get past the holidays, we should be smooth sailing in the early part of next year and, and kind of build some momentum for the next uh, several weeks. But uh, knowing this group, uh, we're going to be kind of going slow. In fact, uh, as I was preparing for tonight, you know, I've got a whole list of the attributes of God. Uh, the, uh, some people call it the perfections of God. We don't like to say the characteristics of God because that seems to minimize it because characteristics can change, you know, uh, but attributes are eternal. And, um, you know, I've got several things I want to talk about, uh, you know, to introduce the series. And then I was going to get into the attributes and I really only prepared one for tonight because I thought we're going to be lucky to even get to that, much less get beyond that. So if we do, great, we can uh, we can go beyond it. But uh, I think you'll see what I mean as we uh, as we get through it. So bear with us on the schedule, but looking forward to uh, to really diving into the greatness of God. And what better place to begin than uh, the first verse in the Bible? And so God's self-revelation to mankind begins with these four words, in the beginning, God. Now, it's four words in English. In Hebrew, it's actually three words. Um, the the uh, article V there is attached to one of the nouns, but in the beginning, God. That's how God's self-revelation begins. When we say self-revelation, what we mean is that at a point in history, at a point in time, we're going to talk about time tonight as one of God's attributes, uh, e the eternality of God. But at a point in time, God chose to reveal himself to us, his creation, through the written word. And really, until that time, people knew about God through his general revelation. Revelation meaning uh, unveiling. It's the Greek word apocalypsis. And so there was general revelation, nature, the heavens, the stars, a providence. I mean, it was clear to everyone prior to God, you know, ever revealing one word of, of, of the Bible that God existed. And then God revealed himself further in more specificity uh, prior to the Bible uh, through prophets and uh, other uh, angels and other avenues of special uh, revelation. So, does anybody know, just to kind of put this in historical perspective, um, and by the way, I think you guys know at Plum Creek Chapel, but for those that might be watching this, you know, I, I firmly believe in a young earth. I believe uh, what the Bible tells us in terms of God's plan of the ages, and that means that the earth was created about 6,000 years ago. Now, if you've never studied that, you've probably been led to believe otherwise based on secularized teaching and the fact that, frankly, the church at large long ago bought into humanistic secular teaching. So even most Christians think the earth is millions or billions of years old and we evolved from a wet rock. And somehow that's compatible, they think, with what God tells us about himself. Uh, well, it's not. And so in full disclosure, you know, everything that, that I'm teaching and that we're talking about uh, not only in this series, but in every series, is based upon a, a biblical young earth perspective. So we're talking about 6,000 years of human history. And so uh, does anybody remember within that scope of time when God first began to unveil himself in the written form through human authors that the Holy Spirit inspired and carried along to record what God wanted us to know about him and his plan of the ages? It was Moses, that's right. And so Moses was the first one to write Scripture. The first five books of the Bible uh, were actually the first five books of the Bible chronologically. That's not always the case because sometimes they... It's mostly the case in the Old Testament, but not so much in the New Testament. Um, but when when was that? Any guesses, Gary? 3,600 years ago. Let me do the... You're going to make me do the math. You just can't give me a year. 1,600 B.C. When? 1,600. Close, so he Gary said 1600 BC, and he's pretty close. 1446 BC was the date of the Exodus, when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. 1446 BC. You'll see some liberal scholars. You know, you always have to be careful what Bible study books you pull off the shelf or pick up at a garage sale, because there's a lot of liberal teaching out there that tries to push everything later. You know, remember in BC they count down. 
So 1290 BC is actually later or more recent than the earlier uh, dates. And so uh, there's liberal scholarship out there that tries to tell you the Exodus happened several hundred years after that. But no, it happened in 1446 BC. And then how long did Moses wander in the wilderness with the children of Israel? 40 years. So he wrote the first five books of the Bible during that 40-year wandering. So that means that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written sometime between 1446 and 1406 B.C. Make sense? So if you think about 6,000 years of human history, you know, creation, I don't have my charts right in front of me, but creation was roughly 4004 B.C. if we were to date it by today's dating uh, uh, techniques. So 4004 B.C. to 1446 B.C. is what, 2400 years, give or take? So God, you know, spoke the world into existence, created mankind. We lived for 2400 years. What are some things that happened during that time in human history? Think of one big thing. The flood, of course, right? Um, we could think of the, the weird event uh, uh, that uh, caused the flood, that caused God to bring judgment upon all the earth when the angels left their proper domain and came to earth and cohabited with women. We can think of the Abrahamic covenant after the flood. Uh, lots of things uh, happened during that uh, time, but it was not until, so 2,400 years of God revealing himself through Speaking directly, for example, with Adam and Eve in the garden. They didn't have to go look up Bible verses and build their theology. They just talked to God, you know. Uh, and then uh, through angels and prophets and so forth. But finally, in 1446, God in His uh, divine plan decided to unveil Himself uh, to the world. And so what we hold in our hands, we, we call this the Word of God. And I remember one time I was speaking for a Bible software company at a large event, and uh, I referred to it as the Word of God, and afterwards one of the colleagues of mine at that Bible software company came up to me and said, we, we don't call it the Word of God. That might offend people. Let's just call it the Bible. Everybody knows what you mean when you call it the Bible. And I said, yes, they do know what I mean when I call it the Bible. I mean the Word of God, <laughs> and I'm going to call it the Word of God because that's what it is. So uh, this is truly God's self-revelation of mankind. So thankfully... Today, you know, here we are, you know, 6,000 years later, or what did you say, 36, so roughly actually be 3,400 years, give or take, after God unveiled himself or began to unveil himself. And we have everything we need for life and godliness right here. So if we're asking the question, who is God, and we're wanting to uh, think about and meditate on and study the greatness of God, we have just a, a deep well of resources right here in the Bible. Now, we could tell anecdotes all day long about God's personal movement in our lives or in the lives of others, things we've witnessed and so forth, and that would also testify to the greatness of God. But I believe we want to start uh, with what God has told us about Himself in His Word. So that's why we call this the self-revelation of God, it's not a second-hand testimony. It's not even an eyewitness testimony. It's God saying, as I've said many times, the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. So this is, here I am, look at me. This is God's uh, word. So the Bible begins with those four words, again, three words in Hebrew, in the beginning, God. So who is this God who revealed himself to us? Well, I want to start just briefly with the names for God in the Hebrew and the Greek. Not the compound names, but the names for God. So there are three words in Hebrew that are used in the Bible to designate God. The formal name for God is Elohim, sometimes truncated to El. Uh, Elohim is plural. Uh, we'll come back to that down the road when we talk about uh, you know, the Trinity and some of those things. The informal name is Adonai sure you're familiar with both of these terms if you've studied the Bible for very long. Adonai, uh, of course, can refer to the Lord God Almighty, but it can also refer to just any Lord. Any master can be kind of just a title for someone, and, and context has to determine if we're talking about the creator of the universe. But, of course, the personal name for God is Yahweh. 
And we've talked about this before, but uh, in the Hebrew text, the Jews, Jewish people would not even vocalize the word Yahweh. Remember, there were no vowels in uh, the Hebrew language. That came along centuries later, well into the, you know, uh, after the New Testament was written. And so the Masoretic scribes are the ones that add those, added those. Um, so the Jews would vocalize. It was, a, it was of course, uh, Hebrew was a spoken language, not, a, not so much a written one. The, the uh, rabbis, the teachers, the priests, they would have scrolls of the written word of God. And of course, the original documents were written, inspired by God through the human authors. But the Jewish people, it's not like they could pull their Bibles off the shelf. So they would memorize it by reciting it. And so uh, when they would see a particular construction of, of uh, consonants, they just knew how to pronounce that. And it wasn't until hundreds of years later that the scribes came along and actually added vowel pointers. It's not even actual vowels like we think of in English. It's a, just a mark that indicates this makes this sound. They call them vowel pointers. So, But what, the reason I say all that is that the word Yahweh, which was four letters in Hebrew, yod hate vav hate. And, of course, they go from right to left, but we're transliterating it into English. It looks like a Y-H-W-H. Is the word Yahweh, which is the personal name for God, the I Am, but they wouldn't say that. They, you'd never find a, a, a Jewish person saying the word Yahweh. They would say, uh, what? Does anybody know? When they would see Yahweh, what would they say and said? Adonai. Is that what you said? I said Hashem. Well, no, they would say Adonai. So Adonai was, you know, just their instinctively, that's what they would say. And, and what's interesting, and I, I've talked about this previously, I didn't plan to get into all this tonight, or I would have shown it to you on the screen, but when they added the vowel pointers to the consonants, as a reminder to the young Jewish people growing up, not to ever vocalize Yahweh, they didn't use the vowel pointers that would make it sound like Yahweh. They used the vowel pointers that would make it sound like Adonai. Well, when you put the vowel pointers from Adonai with the consonants from Yahweh, you get an English word, Jehovah. So you've all heard Jehovah. Well, Jehovah's not even a real word. It's not found in the Bible. It was just something that later on when we translated the Hebrew Scriptures into English, after they'd added the vowel pointers, we come to this word that has a vav, a hate, a vav, and another hate, and then these vowel pointers, and we transliterate that, oh, it's, it's a Jehovah. And so, but actually all that was was just their attempt to to, to treat the word Yahweh with the utmost respect and not even vocalize it. So, but those are the three words for, for God in the Old Testament. And as we study the greatness of God, we're going to see all of them uh, from time to time. Uh, the word there in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God is Elohim. Um, but Elohim is the formal name. Adonai is Lord. And then Yahweh, of course, the personal name for God. Then you come to Greek and you have the same kind of idea, but only really two Greek words. There's the word theos in Greek, which means God. That's why we think of the study of God as theology. You know, uh, So it's a word about God. Theos and logos together, a study of God, a word about God. Logos is the word word. So theos, by far the most common name, but then you also have the Sort of the informal name, kind of like you have with Adonai in Hebrew. You have Kyrios in Greek, which can refer to any master or lord, little l, but it can also refer to the creator of the universe, uh, the Lord, or sometimes the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you know, we see Kyrios there. So those are kind of the, the key names. And so we talked about how God began his self-revelation with those words, in the beginning, God, you know, here I am, I'm about to tell you about myself. And then another very ancient book in the Old Testament, which we really don't know when it was written, but it was certainly written around the same time as the books of Moses, is what? Job. Job. Very good. And so Job says this. This is Elihu, one of Job's friends, uh, speaking at the moment. And he says, Behold, God is great. God is great. We're going to come back to this verse again a little bit later, but... He says God is great. Now we see this adjective, great, which is kind of the name of the series that I've chosen, the greatness of God. 
uh, throughout uh, the Old Testament. Uh, but God is great, Elihu said. He goes on, and we'll come back to this, to say, We do not know Him, nor can the number of His years be discovered. Because He's eternal, as we shall see. But God is great. That word great is the Hebrew word gadol, and it means great, large. It can mean large in terms of size. It can mean remarkable, uh, like a great feat. But it, it generally refers to something out of the ordinary in degree or magnitude. So if, there, if you were to boil down God's attributes to one summary statement, I think Gadol would be a good one. I mean, it, 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 he is one of a kind, really. He is holy. So let's look at a few more verses that, as I've been reading these, it just, it just almost brought me to tears just thinking about these testimonies of God and how he's revealed himself to us. And again and again, each one happens in a context. For example, Psalm 48, the sons of Korah are writing here, Great is the Lord. Now, whenever you see in your English Bible, at least if you have a good English translation, the word LORD in all caps, like it is here, what is that telling us? It's only one who said that. That's good. That's right. But it's, it signifies something very specific. Remember I said they don't like to vocalize the word Yahweh? Well, if... And instead they say Adonai, which is Lord. Well, by in English, translating Yahweh in all caps, it distinguishes from Lord in lowercase. Like if you see capital L in the lowercase O-R-D, that's the Hebrew word Adonai. But if you see all caps, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. So here's the first case where we see the personal name of God. Uh, great is the Lord. Great is Yahweh. So anytime you see all caps Lord, that's Yahweh. Anytime you see capital L, lowercase O-R-D, that's Adonai. Still talking about the same person, but it, it's more personal because there's there might be many lords, and the pagans believe there are many gods, little g, but there's only one I am. There's only one Yahweh. Right. So great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. That's the sons of Korah in Psalm 48. Then we have the Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 77. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Don't you just love the way they put that? Of course, the Psalms were originally written to be sung. So these were hymns. And the people of God would sing these, memorize them, and sing them. And as they're similar to what we do as we sing hymns today, at least if they're good hymns that are, you know, accurately reflecting Scripture. They are uh, extolling the virtues of, of our Creator. And here we are a thousand years before Christ, and these uh, this psalm writer Asaph, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is asking the, the powerful question, Who is so great a God as our God? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Nobody. There is no one else. You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. And then we come to Psalm 86. Uh, this is David's, one of David's psalms. And he says, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So as we've been talking about you know, spiritual warfare and the cosmic battle between God and Satan and all of the, especially like today on the podcast that I did, we talked a lot about paranormal, spiritual, demonic things happening. Um, they may be powerful things, but there's only one God. And as Pharaoh witnessed in when the children of Israel uh, were, were taken out of Egypt, um, and, you know, Moses said, let my people go. The Lord says, let my people go, as Moses reported. Up to a point, the pagan, satanic, Egyptian magicians mimicked a lot of the things that God did. But at the end of the day, there's only one God. And at the end of the day, he's the one who's going to cast Satan and the, 
Antichrist and the false prophet into the eternal lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever. He's the one that's going to destroy this sin-stricken earth and recreate it in sinless perfection. Uh, he's the one that's going to uh, sit on the throne and reign for all of eternity. He's the one that's going to win the battle of Armageddon. <laughs> so, uh, you know, here we are again. This is David, uh, thousand, so roughly 900, 1,000 years before Christ, and God's people are testifying to a fact that sometimes is lost on us today, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, we are so burdened by everything that's falling apart around us. By the way, so much for the you know, big red tidal wave, right? No surprise there. Uh, I mean, I'm not a prophet, but I mean, if you wanted to save time, I could have given you the news headlines six months ago. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, it's kind of lost on us that, you know, God is, uh, God is good. Now, I, I mentioned this today on the program, and I think it's worth mentioning again, that uh, when we see things falling apart, although that's discouraging, it's distressing, uh, it has practical implications because we have to live in this world such as it is. It should nevertheless still fill up, fill us with hope because we know that in order for Christ to come back and make all things new, according to God's plan anyway, Satan has to destroy them. So as we see things falling apart, don't focus on the fact that they're falling apart. Focus on the one who's going to put them all back together again, and that's Christ. And he's coming back, and he's going to do that. So it should fill us with hope. It should fill us with hope also just because the things that we see unfolding before our very eyes today are all prophesied in Scripture. That's what the whole spirit of the Antichrist is all about. First John 4 tells us that the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work. So as we see it working, even though we don't like it, and it's distasteful and it's discouraging, it should remind us that God's word is true. I mean, it's hard to think in those terms. I mean, it's easier to think, you know, the Bible predicted the virgin birth, and we celebrate that at Christmas. The Bible predicted, you know, uh, whatever, the, the, the birthplace of Christ, the, even the crucifixion of Christ and the rejection of it. The Bible predicts all these things that have happened, and it's easy for us to, to look at those fulfilled prophecies and, and say, yea, God. But... It's harder for us to be living within the time when the stage is being set with the unveiling of, you know, the Antichrist's regime and the one world system and all that. And it's harder for us to see that and go, yay, God. We, 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 we tend to go help God, you know, uh, and that's true, too. So I'm not trying to be uh, whimsical about it. It is. A, these are serious times and we, we should take them serious. And it's the spiritual warfare should be fought on our knees in prayer we should be prepared practically if the lord tarries is coming for what may uh, we may have to face but theologically at its core it should also fill us with hope because the things we see happening should not catch us off guard we knew they were going to happen and you know uh, we happen to be living in the time i believe when we're knocking on the door of the end times um Last week, in the first uh, little spot that I did on Brandon House, that he asked me to come on and talk about the Antichrist, I, he asked me, do I think the Antichrist is alive today? And I said, well, based on the signs of the times and everything that I see, I sure think so. I mean, it's speculation, but I would definitely think he is. Well, he then posted that on his TV show website, and he labeled it, J.B. Hickson thinks the Antichrist is alive today, which is fine. I mean, that's that's not not true but you know hopefully people will listen to the interview and realize that i wasn't like guaranteeing it or claiming to have some inside knowledge i just think my best guess is absolutely yeah gary doesn't the devil always have an antichrist waiting in the wings? yeah gary said doesn't the antichrist always have an antichrist waiting in the wings and he does so because the devil does not have the mind of god he always has to have his man of the hour on standby because if the rapture were to happen then Satan's going to kick into gear. And as we know prophetically, after the rapture, we have things like the Battle of Gog and Magog, and then eventually the Antichrist coming to world fame, signing a peace treaty, Daniel 9.27, and that starts the clock ticking on that seven-year reign. So yes, I mean, he might have pegged Hitler. And I really believe he did. I think that the devil thought 
Hitler was going to be the man. I mean, that was so much converged around World War II. And I talk about this uh, in the book, in the chapters 9 and 10, and I talked about it a little bit today, but we saw all kinds of paranormal activity. We saw the, the Foo uh, fighters in uh, both the Allied and Axis uh, sides of things, uh, which were the uh, unexplainable enemies that were surrounding all the planes, and uh, they didn't know what they were because they weren't like, and they weren't t tangible physical things, but they were very real. And uh, so I think the devil was really geared up, and it was probably Hitler. But then, of course, it wasn't God's timing yet. So Hitler died. I mean, we think he died. He's dead by now, for sure. <laughs> I mean, unless they figured out how to do cryogenics and just haven't told anybody. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, other people. I mean, throughout history, yes, he's always had his man. Antiochus Epiphanes, 200 years before, or 160-some-odd years before Christ, was a type of the Antichrist. Daniel 8 actually tells us that. And it's one of the reasons we believe that the Antichrist is going to be a Gentile, not a Jew, even though some Bible teachers think he's going to be a Jew. I'm not going to die on that hill, but I think the overwhelming evidence is he's going to be a Gentile, just as Antiochus was. Yeah? Um, we were just mentioning Hitler maybe being the Antichrist. The only problem with that seems to be that, um, except for the Germans who were obviously being deceived by Hitler himself, Hitler wasn't really loved by everybody, and I thought the Antichrist was kind of supposed to be loved by the world. Well, he was loved by everybody at first. That's why he got into power. Everybody was worshiping him. I mean, look at the old videos. And the, the citizens by the hundreds of thousands were but hailing him. It wasn't was until after he achieved a certain level and the war began that people began to go, oh, no. I mean, it really fits the model for the Antichrist well. Even the rest of the world didn't, you know, see it. I mean, America was complicit in allowing his rise to power. If you go back and look at some of the news reports, before people realized who they were dealing with, they were praising Hitler. So very much uh, fits the pattern. Um, now, obviously, we know he wasn't the Antichrist and the specifics of signing a peace treaty and a one-world system and all that, but that's what Hitler was wanting. He wanted to you know, create a one-world thing, and, and uh, if it had been the time, if God's timetable had been, okay, let's, let's, let's go. Let's get into the end times. Let's get into that tribulation period. Let's get to the return of Christ and the long-awaited kingdom. Then perhaps that would have been who Satan used. Uh, so, you know, you look around today, and, uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I think about. Maybe I'm weird, but, you know, I start thinking about who are some possible candidates, you know. Uh, some time ago, when I was on with Brandon House after Spirit of the Antichrist Volume 1 came out, we were talking about uh, Zelensky. And, and I mentioned that a lot of people think he could be a candidate. And except for the fact that he's Jewish, he does have some interesting parallels there. Uh, but you can make parallels you know, with anybody if you really want to. So it's, it's kind of like keep one eye open and wonder, but it'll be very interesting after we've been caught up to meet the Lord in the air, uh, if we're able to to have knowledge of what's going on the on the earth, if the Lord allows that, to see who that person is. But it, I think he's alive today. And in fact, I will go even one step further. I get total speculation. I'm not citing chapter and verse. I'm just saying, based on my understanding of what's unfolding, uh, I think not only is he alive today, but I think he's prominent today. I think he's an adult. I think he's already in the public eye. He may not be worldly famous, but it's not like he's some obscure you know, a person who just is 12 years old, you know, uh, living in his mom's house somewhere. He, I mean, I think this is a person who's already in a position where if the rapture were to happen tomorrow, he could step step in. That's just my speculation. Yeah. So since we're going down this road, which is great, and I'll ask Judy to keep me straight on this. So in, in Israel right, right now, there are some rabbis declaring that there's a Messiah. Yeah. And that that Messiah is going to come down off the mouth with a new Ten Commandments. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the comment is uh, in, in Israel right now, the, the rabbis are all uh, talking about this new Messiah that's alive and well. He's got the entire Torah memorized. He's doing miracles. He's talking directly with God. That's what I had not heard of that. 
Um, but that's the reason Brandon reached out and asked me to come on last week was because he had done a story on that. And of course, I wrote a book, Spirit of the Antichrist. And so he, he correctly, he, Brandon, correctly, uh, you know, recognized that whatever this guy is, he's not the Messiah. He's an Antichrist. Uh, anybody claiming to be the Messiah today that has, says, hey, I'm the Messiah, I've come back, that's an Antichrist by definition. It's the textbook definition of an Antichrist. Because when will the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come back? Not till after the tribulation, according to every prophecy in Scripture. So, uh, and Jesus himself warned that in the lead up to his return, there would be many people saying, look, here is the Christ. Look, there is the Christ. And he says, don't believe him. Because when I come back, you know, you'll know it. I'm talking about Matthew 24 here. He says, when I come back, it's going to be cosmic signs from the east to the west covering the entire globe. And no one will have to ask. In other words, if you have to ask, is that the Messiah? It's not. Because <laughs> when he comes back, you'll know. The whole world will know. Um, so all of this that's happening over there, and this is not the first time, by the way. There have been plenty of people before, not just Jews, but in other settings that have said, oh, the Messiah is here. You know, people have claimed to be the Messiah. Think of, uh, what was the fellow from Waco, uh, Koresh. Remember, he said, I'm, I'm the Messiah, you know. So you get, you get this, uh, but it's, uh, you know, we can't say with certainty that that fella is the Antichrist, but he is, def capital A, but he is definitely an Antichrist by de definition, because he's claiming to be Christ, but he's not. That's the, you know, essence of an, an Antichrist. So, but let's get back to the great God, all right? <laughs> It's so easy for me to talk about all this stuff forever, and, and I love it. But so here David says, you alone are God, and we like to remind Satan of that. And then we go to an anonymous psalm, and I want to put several verses of this up. Psalm 95, uh, some of you may be familiar with this because there's a song that, uh, like so many of the psalms, we've put them to music in English. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, Psalm 95. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God. So here we see two Hebrew words for God. The Lord, Yahweh, is the great God, Elohim. Great, as we said, Gadol, meaning uh, incomparable to anything else. Uh, forget what the lexical definition was. Uh, out of the ordinary in degree or magnitude. In other words, one of a kind. So remember, Elohim, there were other false gods that pagan religions claimed were Elohim. In fact, they had multiple gods, you know. Uh, and, and you think back into, uh, you know, the ancient Near Eastern false religions. Uh, so here, uh, the, this anonymous psalmist, again, this is, human writer, but it's God unveiling himself to us through the inspiration of Scripture, saying that, no, no, Yahweh is the great God. Whatever you want to say about your gods, they pale in comparison to our God. He's the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. You know, I think about all the portals that we're seeing, you know, that's been uh, presented on, on the news coming out of the military. Tucker Carlson's done a bunch of reporting on this, you know, the USS Nimitz and seeing these unexplainable UFOs that are just disappearing into the sea with this turbulent bubble art in the middle of nowhere. All of a sudden you see this circle and they just disappear and then come back out and they don't see anything underneath, you know, no radar, nothing. They can't find, they just disappear. Well, you know, that may be a mystery to us, but it's not a mystery to God because he made the sea and his hands formed the dry land. It goes on. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. I mean, if that doesn't just fire you up to think about we have a personal relationship with this almighty God. You know, we, 
we can talk with him. We can walk with him. We've got everything we need to know about him right here. We can pray to him. We can burst into the throne room. Uh, who was I talking to? I can't remember the context, but someone reminded me of James chapter 1 where we can continually ask God for wisdom and he gives it to us liberally without reproach, meaning he never chides us for, oh, you again? Don't you remember what I told you last time? Here you are again. Boy, you got a short memory. He never does that. You know, we can't say that if you're a father. Uh, you know, you know, we can't say that. I mean, my kids I can tell, can write books, I'm sure. We have six kids. I'm sure they can write books over the years of the number of times they've come to me. And I've sadly and embarrassingly said, Not now. I'm busy. Can't you tell I'm on the phone? I'm in the middle of an email. Let me finish this email and I'll be with you in a second. But our Heavenly Father never does that. He says, uh, let me read the verse. Uh, James chapter 1. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach and it will be given to him. You know, what a great promise, you know. He is our God. That's the God we serve. That's the great God we serve. The very next psalm, also anonymous. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And, you know, I think when you get right down to it, that's what we, we want to remind Satan of and his demons when we find ourselves... Uh, feeling you know oppressed or attacked or sensing heightened spiritual warfare uh, we just want to remind them of how great God is because they will fear him fear him not in the sense that we are told to fear him in terms of reverence and awe and respect like we never want to just flippantly talk about God he's approachable believe me he's uh, he's imminent and not just transcendent and in that sense, he is like a daddy that we can crawl up in his lap. And all of that is true. But there's something in terms of an attitude that you don't ever want to just think of him as just a peer. You know, like he's my best friend. And, uh, you know, you know, oh, that's just God, silly God, you know, like we would talk about one another. That's disrespectful. And I think that's what the reverence of God on our part as his people is about. But the fear that Satan has of God is a terrifying fear because he knows that with a word he's going to be cast into you know, the, uh, the lake of fire. In fact, remember, Satan's ultimate demise is the end of the millennium. So the end of that thousand-year reign of Christ on this present earth. And the reason we don't talk much about that battle which is described just briefly in Revelation 20, is because unlike the Battle of Armageddon that involves the Antichrist and his armies that he's gathered together and so forth, which, by the way, that too is going to be a complete slaughter, <laughs> but the, the one at the end of the millennium is not even going to be a battle. It's going to be, with a word, it's over. Then Satan is cast into the eternal lake of fire where the antichrist has been for the last thousand years at that point and then as we've been talking about on sunday mornings the entire earth is destroyed because it's not redeemable it's not, you can't just fix it up you know there's no uh, uh fixer upper when it comes to the sin-stricken earth and then uh and then he recreates it in sinless perfection so we need to remind satan of that um Psalm 104 is another anonymous psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are very great. I mean, Gadol is already great enough, but here we have, you know, the superlative. Very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like... A curtain. And then we see Second Samuel 7. Now these are getting into some historical events. 
that not only testify to the greatness of God, but God's word has the people involved declaring his greatness. So this is King David's prayer on the day of the giving of the covenant in 2 Samuel 7, uh, when he was promised that a seed from his line would ultimately reign forever and ever, talking about Christ, the son of David. Um, and David prays this beautiful prayer of thanksgiving, and he, in the midst of it he says, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. So as I mentioned, God uh, testifies to his greatness through his actions, and in this case through his interaction with King David and Solomon. But, you know, so we see his greatness there, but we also see it recorded as we've been reading in the pages of Scripture. And then I love this, talking about uh, the future tribulation period. Remember the famous prophecy that we have in the Old Testament that describes the beginning of the tribulation and the unveiling of the Antichrist, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, that prophecy comes in response to Daniel's famous prayer. Do you remember that? Remember the context there? So Daniel is uh, serving in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, court, um, and you remember he gets permission uh, to... Uh, uh, we have, we have all kinds of, he, he, he reveals dreams and visions. We have Daniel's own dream. Uh, I'm trying to think of the first eight chapters. We have the whole teaching about Antiochus Epiphanes prefiguring the Antichrist. But when you get to Daniel 9, Daniel recognizes that in the history of Israel, they were coming to the end of that 70-year prophecy that Jeremiah had prophesied about, that God's people would be in captivity for 70 years. Well, 70 years were almost up. So Daniel prays, it's a beautiful prayer, and he prays asking the Lord, what comes next? So then God reveals in the answer to Daniel's prayer, the next phase of Israel's history, which is yet another reason why the church is not part of the seven-year tribulation. It has nothing to do with us. It's all about Israel. We didn't have anything to do in the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah prophesied. That comes to an end or is coming to an end, and Daniel says, what comes next? And God says, oh, I'll tell you what comes next. Not 70 years, but 70 times 7, 490 years. So Daniel's prophecy is a 490-year prophecy. He tells us, God tells Daniel specifically when it will begin with the decree uh, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which occurred in 444 B.C. with the decree of Artaxerxes. And he says, for the next 483 years, it'll go all the way up to the coming of Messiah. And if you do the math... Guess where we get 483 years later? We get right up to the coming of Christ into Jerusalem to bring the kingdom, riding in on the back of a donkey. Uh, and then, uh, then Daniel's prophecy says there's going to be a gap of time after the 483 years, and that final seven years won't happen until sometime later. And so we're living in that gap of time right now. But there's still seven more years to come with that 490-year plan that God revealed to Daniel. And that's when the Antichrist rises to fame and takes charge of this satanically inspired one world system. So with that historical context, let's look at Daniel's prayer. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, notice it's lowercase there, so that's Adonai. O Lord, Adonai, great and awesome God, Elohim who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. I love the way God's people frequently remind God of his covenant. Not that he needs to be reminded, but it, it's kind of like our way of bolstering our own faith. Now, Lord, you said you'd never forsake your people. You said as long as there's a sun and moon and stars in the heavens, we can count on getting a kingdom someday. And Lord, we believe you. And, uh, but I always wonder if part of their motivation was to remind God of that as if he needed reminding. Um, so, you know, we see, again, this reference to a great and awesome God. And then we look to the end of the Bible in Revelation. Uh, so now we're in the New Testament, 95, 96 A.D. And we see these four living creatures uh, that are angelic beings that are representative of really 
all the attributes of God. Six wings full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. So John is seeing this picture in heaven of this inner circle that surrounded the throne of God and God himself. And, you know, they're some type of angelic being, probably a very high level of angelic being. And they're just describing, you know, God. Uh, and they repeat the word holy three times. I've talked about this a lot in Hebrew. When you repeat a word once, it's a, a show of great emphasis and emotion. You see it a lot. Uh, if, you know, you'll, if you pay attention for it, you see how often it comes up in the Hebrew Scriptures. You even see it in the New Testament. Uh, like when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? Um, or David when uh, he wept over Absalom. Oh, Absalom, Absalom. So repeating a word is emphasis. It's rare, though, for there to be a threefold repetition. And that's just even more emphasis. And and it, it, it and it's in this case speaks to the infinite, unmatched holiness of God. We saw this also in uh, uh, Isaiah, I think. So it's not unprecedented, but it's rare by comparison. And you know, it it, it just it's reflecting the incredible holiness of God. Now, what does holy mean? Set apart, meaning one of a kind. So he's one of a kind of a kind of a kind. I mean, he's like the ultimate one. Nothing like him. And so these angelic beings are, are crying out, uh, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then at the end of the tribulation, so that was at the beginning, kind of a precursor to the start of the tribulation in Revelation 6, you see this, all this activity taking place in the heavenlies. Who is worthy to open the seals of God's judgment and all that kind of stuff. Now you fast forward seven years later. You get to Revelation 19 when Christ comes back. And John, John writes, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. To Kyrios Arthaos, to the Lord our God goes on and I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude like the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings anybody ever been to Niagara Falls we've been a couple of times I mean the sound of that water just the force and the power of it is just really unlike anything you'll ever hear and that's the way John describes what he's hearing and 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 they're saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Omnipotent, what does that mean? All powerful. Omni, all potent, powerful, all powerful. Let's go back to the Old Testament. This is another anonymous psalmist. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord, so that's Yahweh, right? All caps are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. And, uh, you know, I think that's what we're doing. We're studying the works of God as He's revealed Himself, uh, revealed them to us in His Word. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is an interesting verse. We'll come back to it later in the series. But it's a proof text for the deity of Christ, right? Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, right? So when Christ comes back, that's, he's referred to here as God. Lots of places where that's the case. Jesus himself said, I and my Father are one, John 10, verse 30. So, but what I'm wanting you to focus on here is this reference to our great God. And then uh, back to Revelation. Then I saw another sign in the heaven, great and marvelous. This is uh, Revelation 15. I think it's only eight verses. It's that short little prelude to the final harvest 
that we see with the bold judgments and the return of Christ and the battle of Armageddon. And listen to the way this scene is described. Great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. This is the final outpouring of God's wrath. And he tells us, in them, the wrath of God is complete. Um, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, who's the beast? The Antichrist. Uh, so this is the end of that seven-year period. Those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. I wonder what the Antichrist thought, if he could see that. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And that's really what we've been talking about, you know, several times tonight is this holy 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 this one of a kind oh, god alone is god god alone is great god alone is holy he's one of a kind all nations shall come and worship before you for your judgments have been manifested well i guess so for seven years the judgments and wrath of god have been poured out in this great uh, equalizing so that's all just sort of an introduction to the greatness of god yeah is described as crafty right um, and um, Satan obviously knew God at one point oh yeah he was he's been, yeah. he's been fighting with God for and he knows the scriptures yep. he's been fighting with God for 6,000 years plus he knows what you've been talking about about how mighty and he knows the end of the story. How dumb is he? <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love it. I was thinking that's where you were going. So I don't know if that got picked up on the mic, but he just sort of summarized all that Satan knows or should know about God, having been with him in heaven, been in the inner circle, been one of the uh, cherubs in heaven, um, and uh, fellowshipping with God, and then you know seeing what happens when you rebel against God. And then coming to earth and all, reading all about him, understanding his judgments and his plan and the future. How dumb do you have to be to not get it? Well, that goes to the, the, the really the essence of deception. And the worst form of deception is self-deception. And that's something that I learned a long, long time ago. And man, it, it really stuck with me. And uh, you see it time and again with people it's really it's kind of embodied in that clever mark twain saying that you've heard me say a thousand times because one of my favorite mark twain sayings that it's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled right that, that's really describing self-deception and uh, you know satan is self-deceived i mean he i've said many times he knows the bible better than any christian he just doesn't believe it's true Oh, sure. Yeah. No, most notably, he's been defeated several times already. It was what Paul said. Uh, but most notably at the cross. Why wouldn't he just turn and say, you win, God? And because uh, uh, why wouldn't he just say, you win, God? Because, as I've said many times, pure evil never waves the white flag of surrender. Never. It has to be defeated. And he is, he is the embodiment of evil. He is evil. And so... Uh, yeah, it makes no sense to us, you know. I mean, that would have been a pretty big clue. I mean, he thought he'd won. He thought, I mean, he indwelt directly Judas to make that happen, leaving no room for error. I'm not going to delegate this to my demons. I'm going to handle this one myself. And he watched, you know, the Lord stumble up that Via Dolorosa carrying the cross laughed and scoffed and mocked like a lot of the people around them saw him breathe his last heard it is finished saw him laid in a tomb and he thought i finally did it and then three days later i mean he must have shrieked in horror yeah so you're right that would have been the perfect time logically 
to, to, for him to say, okay, I mean, I, I gave, gave him my best shot, you know, and uh, I mean, it's it just not meant to be. Well, it's not meant to be. It's not meant to be, and that's what he needs to be reminded of. And, but, but he's, uh, he's delusional. He's illogical. Evil is always illogical. Yeah, Justin. It really feels like a spoiled child who thinks he's the best and is letting hate make all his decisions. Yes. He hates us so much that he wants to take as many of us ruin our relationship with God as many of us as we can. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. It feels like a spoiled child uh, who's operating out of hatred and trying to take as many people with him, you know, on the way down. And by the way, that's a good cautionary tale because if you look at 1 John 3, the Bible clearly says that when we are acting out of fellowship with the Lord, not acting like a son of God, Remember, 1 John 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. When we placed our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, we become part of the family of God. And that in itself is just amazing to think about. This great God that we've been reading about, we're part of His family now. That's what being born again is all about, being born from above, spiritually reborn into the family of God. But he goes on, uh, to talk about beloved, now we are children of God. It shall not be revealed what we shall be, but we know when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. But then He goes on to talk about how, when we sin, we're of the devil. <laughs> so when we operate in hate, when we operate in bitterness, when we are irrational and having uh, you know fits of rage or just deceived. We are acting like a child of the devil. That's what 1 John 3 is all about. People miss this because they've been taught you know, bad theology. And they think, oh, well, if you're sinning, you must not be a Christian. Well, look, we all sin. I don't recommend it. You shouldn't do it. We're not supposed to do it. It's a bad thing. But the fact is, as long as we're topside this earth, we're going to have that fleshly nature and we're going to do it. And what he's saying here is when you're sinning, you're acting like a child of the devil. So you just, Justin, described eloquently i think with your analogy the devil but it just occurred to me that we need to look in a mirror because that's what we're acting like when we are out of fellowship with the lord and maybe that would be a, a kind of a reminder next time so uh, anything else we're, we're kind of at, out of time next week we'll dive into the attributes of god and we're going to begin and I've got a lot that I want to talk about related to this with God's eternality. You have to start there. So a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in months gone by, especially with our Calvinism series and trying to, you know, define God in terms of time, space, and matter and our linear thought, we're going to see kind of what that's all about here and why that's so difficult. Because God, by His very nature, number one attribute, I mean, they're all equal, but I think the one that you have to deal with first is his eternality, that God is eternal. So we'll pick up with that next week. But any closing comments or questions tonight as we think about the greatness of God? Yeah. Um, so if you're talking about the end times, just it's not really a serious question, just curious. Um, would you, especially as a studier of these kind of things, endorse the Left Behind series by um, Jerry Jenkins and. Yeah, Tim LaHaye. Yeah, so the question is, do I endorse the Left Behind series? I think that's a serious question. I don't think it's a funny question. Um, and the answer is an emphatic yes. I knew Tim LaHaye personally, worked with him. The group that was the uh, inspiration for that series was a group called the Pre-Trib Research Center, which I was a member of. They had already started that project prior to my joining, but I've spoken there three times at their com annual conference. Tim LaHaye, I mean, uh, Tommy Ice is the director of the pre Research Center, very good friend of mine. He wrote one of the chapters in my biggest book out there on the table. Uh, love him to death, one of the smartest guys on the planet. But uh, I can tell you the genesis of that was that, uh, you know, they wanted to find a way to reach the populace, not the academy, not the seminaries and Bible colleges, but the average Joe Christian 
wanted to reintroduce them to the biblical notion of pre-tribulationism, dispensationalism, and the plain teaching of God's Word about the return of Christ. And so they had this idea, and they ran with it. And, of course, I don't think any of them originally dreamed it would be what it became. And, uh, you know, Tim LaHaye, of course, is with the Lord now. Uh, had the privilege of speaking on the, at the 25th anniversary of the Pre-Trib Research Group, which was the year he died, coincidentally. I had the privilege of speaking that year. I spoke on one minute after the rapture. You can still find that video out there. Um, but I do know from talking to him and uh, mostly from talking to people that knew him better than I did that he didn't agree with every detail in the book series, uh, but that Jerry Jenkins, who was kind of the, you know, in a sporting event, you've got the play-by-play -play guy and then you got the color commentator. Well, Tim LaHaye was the play-by-play -play guy and, you know, Jenkins was the color commentator. So he took some liberties and he... So, for example, in the series, at the beginning, they have the Battle of Gog and Magog happening before the rapture. Ezekiel 38 and 39 happening before the rapture. Tim LaHaye didn't believe that. That was not his view. It's not my view either. Um, so, but it just made it, 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 it was easier to write that way, I guess. I don't know. And then, of course, Jerry Jenkins has had his share of problems. I haven't been keeping up with all that. I'm not sure if he's, you know, repented and been restored or not but he, he certainly had some issues so but that doesn't change the fact that the general premise of that those books was to get people excited about the return of Christ so yeah I would I think it's great it's fiction I mean it, it's historical fiction you might say or prophetic fiction I don't even know what the category is but it's it's generally accurate with a lot of fictionalized details to make it into a, a story uh, but yeah I, I think it's good all right. Well, thank you guys. Uh, thanks for coming out midweek. It seems later than it is because of the time change, but uh, that's all right. L look forward to coming uh, Sunday, uh, and then we'll pick this up again with the attributes of God next Wednesday. Have a great rest of the week. Thanks, JV.